invite you to take a Bible and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're doing so, I, I just remind you, we uh, began a series on 1 Corinthians, I think it was back around 1997, and I've been continuing on ever since. It seems that long to some of you, but uh, for probably about 18 months, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and today I uh, plan to finish chapter 15, which leaves uh, one chapter, and I want to do two sermons on that one chapter before we come to our missions conference. But just a reminder before uh, we read from uh, chapter 15, um, if you weren't here at the very beginning, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church that he had started. He had gone to the city of Corinth, he had led people to faith in Christ, he had established the church. Then he had moved on, since God had called him to be a missionary, more so than a local pastor. He had moved on to the city of Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus, it's a couple of years later since he left Corinth, he receives a letter. And the letter uh, asks a lot of questions about issues they were facing. And he deals with those questions earlier in 1 Corinthians. Uh, questions about marriage and singleness, uh, questions about spiritual gifts and worship and so forth. He also dealt with some sins in, among, amongst them that he had, had been reported to him, especially disunity and a spiritual arrogance. They had begun uh, kind of a celebrity-type culture where some would say, I'm of Paul, and others, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm the real spiritual one, I'm of Christ. So he, he deals with all that in the early part of 1 Corinthians. Then we come to chapter 15, and the first half of chapter 15 addresses the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. And he gives the facts of the resurrection, how he was uh, uh, crucified, how he was dead, how he was buried. Three days later, he arose, and over a period of 40 days, he appeared to perhaps as many as 2,000 people total. Now, in this part of the chapter, we're going to deal with the subject we rarely talk about, and that's where he's going to shift from the resurrection of Christ to our resurrection as believers, that we will experience a resurrection like Christ did with a resurrected body made possible because of the resurrection of Christ. Now, um, it's a hopeful message. Uh, first time I've ever really preached on this, as you will see. Uh, but I have loved the preparation. And uh, so I'll begin reading in verse 35. If you turn, if you follow along with me in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of, one, of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come here with hungry souls. And you tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Perhaps we have an abundance of physical bread, but we pray now that you would nourish us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Many, many years ago, I had the opportunity to have lunch with a well-known author and counselor, Dr. Larry Crabb. I was uh, right out of college serving on a church staff in Boca Raton, Florida. He was an elder in the church. He had a thriving counseling practice. His books were being published, and he continued to write books through the years. And so we got together at one of those places that just serves homegrown seafood or home-caught seafood in South Florida, uh, Red Lobster. And I remember sitting down, and he asked me a question that I honestly am still trying to answer today some 40 years later. And here was his question. Once we sat down and got settled and we were waiting on the food, he looked at me and he said, Chip, what do you find motivates people? And then he sat back and let me attempt to answer. That's a good question, isn't it? What motivates people? The call to be a follower of Christ is a call to, the New Testament says, a race, uh, a marathon a long obedience in the same direction. It's a race which does not end until either we die or Christ returns, whichever happens first. And many things, many obstacles can arise that can trip us up. And I believe most of those are within more so than from without. Uh, Doubt about what we believe. Intellectual questions 
that we all have. None of us have all the answers. Uh, disappointment, we pray for something and we seem to think that, oh, this is clearly God's will from what I read in his word and it doesn't go the way we hoped and we think not only did God not answer either or he gave me the answer I didn't want. And we grow bitter, bitter toward God, disappointed with God over the circumstances of life. Uh, it can be betrayal by another person. It can be falling into some kind of uh, life-controlling sin. It, it, it can be hundreds of different things that can prove obstacles. And so the Apostle Paul gives us motivation to carry on. And so in that final verse that I read, verse 58, when he says, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is a call to perseverance. That is an encouragement not to throw in the towel, not to become cynical, not to think what I'm doing is of no, uh, of no account, of no results, of no effect. Or they're just temporary. They will not last. And so in this chapter, I believe that when he said, therefore, let us do this, he's referring primarily to this chapter as well as the entire letter. But this comes right on the heels of where he's described the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to talk about our resurrection. Sounded kind of complicated when I read it, didn't it? It's not as complicated as it seems. Um, and hopefully I'll show that and I'll have the reverse effect. We examine the resurrection of Jesus in the early part of chapter 15. But now the question is, what happens to us as his followers at our death, at our resurrection? And that question is asked in verse 35. Really, it's two honest questions. How are the dead raised? These were people that struggled with the concept of a resurrection. And what kind of body will that person have? Will they be the walking dead? Will they look like zombies? I mean, how does a dead person uh, come back to life? Or how are they raised from the dead? They were honest questions, but they were asked thinking only in the natural sphere, what we see before us, what we can touch and, and hold. And he says in response, you, you foolish, what a foolish question. And then he focuses on a concept, and I'm going to be technical for just a moment. The central part of this chapter is verse 50. Go ahead and look at it. Here's the premise that he's going to develop. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Everything said before is leading up to that, and what comes after goes back to that. Flesh and blood, like you have right now, your own flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable, that's what you have right now, our bodies that can die, they will perish, inherit the, the imperishable. So how does Paul get us to that point of understanding? Well, he begins in the first paragraph, verses 31, 36 to 41, he uses illustrations from nature. Jesus referred to his own death like a grain of wheat falling into the ground being planted in the ground. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, said Christ. So when God created the world, when he created everything, he ordered it in such a way that without death and burial, there would be no resurrection. Now think of the world of nature. When a 
seed is sown into the ground, is put there in a garden or there in the fields, it disappears. And that grain goes through a transformation to where this plant, if all goes well, this plant that doesn't look anything like the seed grows out of the ground. And Paul takes examples of different kinds of bodies that God has created. And he created them to suit a particular environment. Humans, animals, birds, and fish. Birds were created for a certain environment to fly. Fish were created for a certain environment. They cannot live out of water. All bodies created by God are for a particular place. And then he says that the heavenly bodies, now he refers, though they're not bodies like ours, the stars, the moon, the sun, and so forth, they were also created by, by God for his glory. You just think about how the stars glorify God. I like to read some about stars and think of the star Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is so large that if you were to could take it and cut it in half like an orange, half of it is too big to pass between the earth and the sun. You would not be able to, 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 that's how large that star is. These things were created for God's glory. Well, then he moves on in verses 42 and following to what type of body do you have? What's your body type? I'm not talking about short and stocky or tall and thin or anything like that. We're talking about the difference between physical body and spiritual body. He says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What goes into the ground is not what comes out of the ground. Jesus' body went into the grave, but what came out was something different. You will die, as we all will, unless Christ comes first. Our body will return to the dust, and then on the day of resurrection, something else will come forth. I never saw a dead human body until I was in the eighth grade. And within a period of, of really weeks, both of my beloved grandmothers passed away. And I went... That was my first funeral to go to. So that was the first time I saw a dead body. Since then, I've seen many, given being a pastor. And in every case, it's always the same. The, the body is weak. There's nothing honorable about it. It's natural, and it's powerless. Well, what causes it to be this way? We have to go back to Genesis, the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. Verse 45, he refers to the first Adam. He's talking about Adam and Eve. He's talking about the first man that was created. Here's what the Bible records in chapter 2 of, of Genesis. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So Adam, our ancient foreparent, and every human since then, including us, is made of dust. We have been born, it says in verse 49, we have all born or carried the image of the man of dust. But, on the contrast, the last Adam, Jesus himself, he took on flesh and blood. And he eventually he was put to death and buried, but everything which took place from that point on when Jesus died is nothing but revealing of the resurrection. He became a life-giving spirit, it says in verse 45. When he was raised from the dead, he revealed his true origin as the man from heaven, it says in verse 47. 
So he was truly God and fully man, but he was not condemned to lie in the dust, but destined to resume his place at the right hand of God the Father. And so all those who belong to him, when we come to faith in Christ, we put our trust in him, we become his sons and daughters, we're adopted into his family, we bear his image, verse 49. Both in the sense of being made like him and the sense of sharing in his resurrection body. I'll read verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, with our natural bodies, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Now, perhaps the most helpful single clue is to note how Paul contrasts the bodies we have now and the bodies that will be given to us uh, on the when the day of resurrection. The first body, this body, your body, has all these limitations, but the second body has all the capacity to be inhabited fully by God's Spirit. And so from this perspective, it's obvious that the first body, flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God because decay and corruption cannot be part of what is eternally incorruptible, it says in verse 50. Let me bring things down and hopefully state it in an illustration that we can understand. I want you to imagine a car, an automobile that you would drive now. Uh, perhaps a small car, perhaps a Toyota Prius. Don't raise your hand if you drive one. I don't want to embarrass you. But a Prius has been built for over 20 years. They're sold in 90 countries. I mean, these things are everywhere. A Toyota Prius, which is not much bigger than a, a sardine can, it, it, it weighs 3,000 pounds, which is not much for an automobile. It's powered by a little bitty engine in the front, and a great big expensive battery in the back. It's got 121 horsepower. It will go 0 to 60 in 10.7 seconds. The top speed is 112 miles per hour downhill. Now, some of you drive these. Um, imagine if I were to ask you, hey, let's enter your car in the Daytona 500. Let's go down to Daytona, and let's see what this Prius will do. So we go down there, and there's a racing team to meet us. They say, we've got to prepare your automobile for this track, because if it's not going about 70, it won't even make it around the bank turn. So we're going to take this little bitty engine in the front, about this big. We're going to take it out, and we're going to put this, this eight-cylinder horsepower at 850 horsepower motor in the front it had 112 we're going to push it up a notch or 121 horsepower we're going to make it 850 oh and by the way you know how your old engine you'd go from 0 to 60 in 10.7 seconds you're going to go from 0 to 60 in 3 seconds with this engine and this engine cost $80,000 now we're going to change the suspension and we're going to change the braking and we're going to put different tires on there that will have to be changed often. Basically, we're going to change everything about it. Why? Because if we put your Prius on that track and you run it wide open, that engine will melt down after a certain amount of time. There's no way it will be sustained in that environment. If you and I, when we die, were to go into the presence of God with these bodies, 
they would be like a Prius in the Daytona 500. Something has to change. Something has to be supercharged. Or to use a 1960s term, somebody's got to be souped up to be in his presence. So that's what he does. The body you now have, as glorious as it is, is not able to be in the presence of God. And so to prepare for that environment, it must undergo an extreme makeover of the most extreme makeovers. A transformation, in fact. It has to be transformed into his likeness. Well, what was that? What was his likeness? What was his resurrection body like? Well, theologians use these big terms saying there was continuity and there was discontinuity. I'll just say to us here in Macon, in some ways it's similar and in some ways it's different. There was continuity in that he was recognized. After the resurrection, in some cases he had to speak, so he looked somewhat different, but when they heard his voice, his disciples knew who he was. His body, their continuity was there, and that he had scars in his hands and the wound in his side from the crucifixion and the sword by the the spear by the Roman soldier there when he was on the cross. This is just a side note, but you and I will carry scars into the next life. Our works that we do for Christ here will go with us as evidenced by scars in our life. Now, how is it different? There's discontinuity and there's no mortality. Jesus did not have the confines of time and space. What happened to Jesus after his death and resurrection will also happen to all those in Jesus when they are all together on the last day, it says in verses 51 through 53. So the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God as he describes it here, was not made for the kinds of bodies we have now. And so Paul, if you're struggling to understand this, you get the impression Paul is is struggling to describe it. He's trying to describe something which really is indescribable. New Testament scholar George Ladd wrote, Who can imagine a body without weakness or infection or fatigue or sickness or death? This is a body utterly unknown to earthly historical experience. It is an order of existence in which the laws of nature no longer apply. In fact, Ladd writes, When one puts his mind to it, it is quite unimaginable. It's like I can't even wrap my mind around it, my brain around it. What will this body be like except what I know about the resurrected Christ? All right, let's push on. There's another question. He's asked a question, what will the dead be like? How will it happen? Now they ask, when will this transformation happen? And in verses 51 and following, he explains he's revealing a mystery. We know that the word mystery is used often in Bible in the Bible to talk about fulfillment of prophecies and, and a partial part of a story being made full. But here Paul seems to be saying, this is something God has revealed only to me. Now I'm going to tell it to you. And again he uses a picture of us falling asleep to describe the condition of those who die as believers. We fall asleep in Jesus and our next conscious experience is to wake up in the presence of Christ. So the moment of death, whenever that happens, sometimes we're not sure with brain waves and so forth today, but whenever that happens, that very moment, for the Christian, there is a transition from this life to the next. 
The soul goes there, the body remains here. Then on that final day, that last day, those who have died will go to be with Christ. He will return with them, and those who are alive will meet them in the air, and this is how fast the transformation will happen that we will be given resurrected bodies. The twinkling of an eye. For our sakes, rather, you know, when you see somebody's eye just kind of twinkles, think of the blink of an eye. That fast. That fast. We're told here that that will happen. Sigmund Freud, this is the first time I've quoted him from this pulpit, the founder of psychiatry wrote this, And finally there is the painful riddle of death, of which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. No, it will. Christians have victory in death and over death. Christ said, because I live, you shall live also. And then Paul goes on. And he says, death will then be defeated. And here he quotes, you see those two there in verse 54 and 55. It's in quota- it's quotations, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's quoting from Isaiah in the book of Hosea. And the picture is God's going to swallow death up. And it's almost as though Paul or the prophets before him were taunting it. Oh, death, where's your victory? Thought you were going to win, but you're not. Where's your sting that's so fatal? Now what? What would you do now if you knew you could not die? How might that affect your decisions? How might that affect your energy and your enthusiasm about life? We should remember two things. We will die. You will die unless Christ comes first. So prepare now. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the moment you come into this world, you're beginning to go out of it. We're one day closer to that than we were yesterday. We're almost one hour since we began our service, closer than we were when we started. But realize your enemies of sin and death have been defeated by Jesus. And listen to these invitations he gives us. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's the first point, you will die. The second is you will not die. This world is the land of the dying. The next is the land of the living. You'll sleep. It'll be temporary in that sense. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare for that time? That's verse 58. Therefore, based on all this, based on the resurrection of Christ that shows he will raise us as well, based on the fact that this body of Adam will be changed into the body of the next Adam, based on the fact that this body will return, be buried in the ground, and be raised and transformed. Based on that, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing, thinking about it, being assured of it. And he's writing to these Corinthians Christians. They had, they had loads of problems in the church, but he doesn't say, hey, this is just for the super spiritual group. This is for everybody who names the name of Christ. Years ago, I've, I've been blessed, and it's a privilege to be called to a vocation 
that I've never had to be away from my family for real extended periods of time. I can't imagine what some of you go through that have faced deployments of months or years that whose job takes a person away for months. Uh, I knew a family whose father served on a submarine that would go to the North Pole, and he would be gone a year. And so I, I, I can't relate to that from my experience. I can empathize with it for those of you that are living that way or will or have. The longest I've been away from Barbara and the children when they were real young was about two weeks on a trip to Eastern Europe. And I vividly remember, even though it was many years ago, saying goodbye to them and seeing all three kids crying in the driveway and then the great expectation of meeting up with them when we flew back into Atlanta. We, we had been to the Ukraine, and we went from the Ukraine, we, we flew to uh, Austria, and then on v Vienna Air, we flew to Austrian Air, we went to New York, and then back to Atlanta. This was the days when a family could wait for you at the gate. Some of you that are young think, what kind of prehistoric era was that? Well, it was pretty nice back then, at least uh, for, for meeting a family. So uh, I knew they were going to be there. I knew they were going to be waiting. So I didn't care. Hey, the pretzels are stale. I, it doesn't matter to me. You know, I'm squeezed between two large people, and I was a large person myself, or am, and on a L-1011, and I had like three seats and five seats and three seats or something like that, some configuration. I didn't care if there was turbulence in the air on the plane. I didn't care. Why? Because I knew who was waiting at the end. That's what I was looking forward to. So the other things became incidental. They were not... They were not obsessive problems. When I think about heaven, and I hope that when you do too, um, you think about people you've lost uh, who were very dear to you, and, that, and now they've gone on, they're dead. And you greatly miss them. And some of you, perhaps, in a crowd this size, struggle through each day without that person, wondering even if life is worth living without them. It may have been a, a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a spouse or a child or an unborn child. I thought a lot about this over the past week, and I, I, for the first time in years, I thought back to Christians who ministered to me in my early years in high school and college who died from a human perspective far too soon, far too early. And I thought, what a joy it's going to be to be reunited with these people. I look forward to seeing them. And they won't have the type of bodies they went out on with. They'll have new, transformed bodies. I look forward to seeing my friend Emery. Emery and I were in a garage band together. He was a high school friend, and I went off to college, and I came home one weekend. I ran into him in a music store. And much to my surprise, Emery had become a Christian. And he was so excited because he said, I plan to study for the ministry. I, I, I want to preach the gospel. And he got a job in a convenience store to help pay for school, and he was murdered in that convenience store as an employee when I was in college. I look forward to seeing my friend Emery. I want to see my lifelong friend Wade, who brought, died of a brain tumor just a few years ago. He was a music leader, music director at Perimeter Church. I want to see my friend Mike Sartell, who was killed in a car wreck. He was a pastor in Mississippi, and, and he and a young son both died uh, in a car in West Memphis. I want to see an older friend, a neighbor named Mark, 
He used to drive and take me and my friends to, to meetings with Campus Crusade for Christ. He loved Christ. He was a great witness for Christ, but he was a tortured soul. And in the depths of despair, he took his own life when I was still young. I look forward to seeing Mary. She was a beauty queen in our high school, and she was radically converted her junior year in college. Radically converted. She went to a Christian conference shortly after college. She met a guy who was a Christian. He was a tennis pro. They married, and in just a few years, she died of cancer. I want to see my friend Jean. Jean served several PCA churches in women's ministry. Uh, and she would host Barbara when Barbara and I were engaged, and she would come visit me in South Florida. She would spend the night at Jean's, uh, at Jean's apartment. Uh, I want to see her after she died of a disease up in South Carolina several years ago. I want to see my mom and my dad. I very much look forward to hearing our son, Stephen, speak for the first time and to say my name. I look forward to being reunited with many of our church members who've gone on. I want to see members of the search committee who were out of their minds when they called me to be the pastor, and now they've gone on to be the Lord. And uh, there are too many to mention. Names and faces of men, women, and children in the 31 years we've been here. I look forward to meeting some of your children that I've heard about who died far too young. In some cases, they never saw the light of day. And you still live with a hole in your heart that cannot be filled in this life. But you will recognize them and you will have the opportunity to see them in transformed bodies which will never die. Don't you look forward to that? Doesn't that make this life seem brief? It's kind of like, come on, let's, let's finish up. Let's get there. Let's get there. I'm eager. I'm on the plane. They're waiting in the airport. I'm waiting. I want to see them. That's why in the last verse... Next last verse of the Bible, the disciple John says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have not left us like Sigmund Freud's quotation where the inevitability of death is just we can do nothing about it and we all face it and it's just hard. And we know that death is not natural. You never intended it to be part of your creation, and yet it's the result of our rebellion and our sin against you, but you've not left us there. You demonstrated your own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May you give the assurance today that we are trusting in Christ and in him alone, not in our good works, not in our morality, not in just hoping that you will uh, let us go to heaven, but the firm promise that Christ has gone to prepare a place for us and he will come and take us to be there where we will be forever. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.